The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show. All persons described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matters such as violence and graphic descriptions along with adult language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On December 15th, 2017, in Toronto, Canada, police arrive on the scene of a house with what appears to the untrained eye to be a double suicide. However, upon investigation, it is anything of the sort. It's not just a normal homicide either. The victims happen to be two of the richest people in Canada. To this day, no one knows what really happened. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Barry and Honey Sherman. Police responded to a call. I was a medical. Canadian police are investigating the mysterious death of one of the nation's wealthiest couples, found dead at their mansion in Toronto. The circumstances of their death appear suspicious, and we are treating it that way. The bodies of 75-year-old billionaire Barry Sherman and his wife Honey were found Friday. The Globe and Mail reports their bodies were found hanging from a railing on the edge of a basement swimming pool, and they say police are investigating a possible murder-suicide. The couple had recently listed their home for sale for nearly 5.4 million U.S. dollars. And according to media... Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. Well, Coach, uh, I think today kind of ends our triple-digit heat wave. I mean, it's going to get back... I hope so. Just in time for me to go back to work tomorrow. Yeah, I was going to say... Considering I have done nothing this entire summer to prepare for the school year, I was hoping and praying that I would get a lot of time during my week-long pre-planning to get my classroom ready, to get my lesson plans ready, get everything ready. Hopeful thinking. Check my school email today. Hey, is is this your first rodeo? It ain't. You know better. But I figured I'd get a little bit of time, just a little. Not only that, not only are we in meetings and training the entire week, I found out today that I actually am I am training people on Tuesday and Wednesday. Heck Did not yeah. know that. Total of eight, four hours each day, I'm going to be the facilitator for a training. I didn't know that. <laughs> you, would, you would think they would let the trainer know that kind of information. She, she mentioned it. That we were going to try, but never confirmed. But it's confirmed. I got, I got to teach people how to lay their hands on students without hurting them. Yeah. Um, so the new catchphrase that I've noticed this educational year is, 
they're going to we're going to give you some of your time back if this meeting earn uh ends early. Give you some time back. How about you cut these meetings in half? And I saw a great thing today. It said uh, it showed the dumpster that's on fire floating down the road, and it says watching the administration whose project they just presented to the entire school go up in flames with one question from a faculty member. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this, the thing I sent you today with the, like, we just want to work in our classrooms. Yeah. Administrators during the celebration is like the Bill Gates and all them yeah. dancing like awkward, yeah. <laughs> awkward idiots. Like, yeah. They're celebrating us. Get your own damn pizza. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just leave me alone. That's the best thing. Like, but anyway, heck, we could turn this into an educational bitch comedy show in a minute. But well, luckily, considering the clientele that I teach, considering their severe and profound special education, there's not a whole lot of planning I can do. That's kind of a we go with the flow. If they're in a good mood, we might do some, you know, news to you or blah blah blah. Do some worksheets and arts and crafts, but. I got one that's violent and a runner. So I'm pretty sure that's going to take up the majority of my day is restraining this kid. But luckily I know how to do it safely. It's all about the technique. Oh yeah. The quote unquote mindset training. That's right, baby. That's right. But anyway, anyway, okay. So let's talk about, let's, let's, let's do something relaxing and talk about murder. Yeah, man, let's get into get my, it. My, get my mind off this work stuff. <laughs> All right, so we are talking about one of Canada's richest couples, Barry and Honey Sherman, tonight. They had, were they? They had to be the richest, right? Um, were, were they not? They may have been at the time, but anyway, Bernard Charles Sherman was born on February twenty fifth, nineteen forty two, to Herbert and Sarah Sherman. Herbert was a business partner in a zipper community community. <laughs> they call those companies, not communities. While his mother was an occupational therapist. Now, Barry would lose his father to a heart attack when he was just 10 years old, so his uncle, Louis Winter, would become the father figure in Barry's life. Barry would enroll at the University of Toronto at just 16 years of age. He chose the engineering science program as his major and later recalled that he had chosen the program solely on the fact that that program had the reputation of being the hardest. After graduating from the University of Toronto, Barry would obtain his doctorate from MIT in astrophysics. To say the man is smart is a huge understatement. Now, while in college, he would help his uncle Lewis out by working as a driver for his company. He quickly moved up the company ladder and would ultimately oversee operations whenever his uncle was away on business. Now, Barry would marry Honey Reich uh, in 1971. She, too, was a fellow graduate of the University of Toronto. She was the daughter of Polish-Jewish Holocaust survivor, survivors. The couple would have four children, a son, Jonathan, and three daughters, Lauren, Alexandra, and Kaylin. While Barry socialized regularly with Honey, he was known to his friends and family as a workaholic. At the social events they attended, she was the more outgoing of the two, while he often kept to himself and discussed mainly his business. The Sherman family frequented a ski club on winter weekends, 
But while Honey and the children hit the trails, Barry would remain in the lodge, pouring over his work documents. Now, even as his wealth began to grow, Barry drove his cars until they reached an advanced state of disrepair, as one news article put it. Basically, he drove it till the wheels fell off. And a friend worried that one of his vehicles was so bad, a Ford Mustang, that it was leaking carbon monoxide into the the, uh, passenger compartment. So for his 50th birthday, Honey gave him a red sports car with a bow on it in front of all of his friends that had attended a party she had thrown. Man, I wish somebody would do that for me. Yeah, me too. Well, being the, I guess, brilliant non-social person that Barry was, he simply turned around and said, you're going to have to take that back. I've got a car. (laughs) And she did. So in... 1924, Lewis Lloyd Winter, Barry's uncle, opened a company where he would process blood and pregnancy tests in Toronto and soon found himself with more work than one man could handle. He would branch out from the medical testing field and notice that prescription drugs were too expensive for the average person, so he decided to start a generic drug company to help lower the cost. So in 1959, Empire Laboratories Limited would grow so big that Lewis would purchase his first large-scale office-slash-manufacturing building, and by 1964, Empire Labs was Canada's largest pharmaceutical company. Now, unfortunately, Lewis would pass away from an aneurysm at the age of 41, and 17 days after his untimely death, Lewis's wife would pass away from leukemia. In 1967, after Barry had finished his PhD, he purchased Empire Laboratories from the executor of the estate of his aunt and uncle. Now, after Lewis and Beverly's death, their four children, Paul, Timothy, I'm sorry, not Paul and Timothy, it's Paul, Timothy, Jeffrey, Andrew, Carrie, Joel, Dexter and Dana Charles were left orphaned. Empire had been the first company to secure the compulsory rights to manufacture Hoffman LaRoche's Valium, also known as diazepam, in Canada and one of and was one of the country's largest manufacturers of Pfizer's doxycycline. Now, the Upjohn companies. Ornays and the dietary sweetener saccharin were also part of the Upjohn company. And according to what you read, Barry and the chemical engineers at Empire were able to make a, air quote, generic version of each of those. Now, his uncle's estate allowed Barry to buy a majority stake in Empire Labs and run it only on the condition that the four winter children be allowed to work for the company when they reach 21, with the option to buy 5% stakes in the company two years later, with 15-year royalties on four of its patent products. So, we're talking a good chunk of change, even at 5% of the company. Now, this... I'll take it. I would have taken it. And I would have never worked another day in my life. But the fine print in this agreement stated that all of what I just described would be voided if Empire sold. 
And wouldn't you know it, in 1969, Empire sold. Barry had crafted a deal to swap shares with Empire's largest customer that put the customer in control of the company. So in 1970, he invested in the American firm Bar Labs with U.S.-based partners. Barry would soon become its largest shareholder and would ultimately serve as Bar Labs president. He would eventually control a third of Bar Labs stock. Now, Bar Labs would win the first rights to manufacture a generic version of Lilly's Prozac. In January 1972, Barry and Ulster Limited sold Empire to the Quebec-based Canadian operations of publicly traded International Chemical and Nuclear Corporation of California A for 57,000 shares of the pharmaceutical company Valiant. This was the transaction that voided the arrangement with his uncle's estate. A year later, Sherman stated, or I'm not, I can't read either. Barry would start Apotex a year later with a former Empire friend, and they said a handful of former Empire personnel. They would incorporate Apotex in 1974. It was the privately owned and Barry Sherman controlled company that became Canada's largest domestic pharmaceutical manufacturer. Now, Barry also became involved in nutraceutical manufacturing and other businesses, founding the National Institute of Nutrition and with his partner, Richard Cashenberg, he would sell this National Institute of Nutrition to Schiff Labs and continued to build the portfolio at Apotex. Now, by 2016, Apotex employed over 10,000 people, and as one of Canada's largest drug manufacturers, it sold over 260 different products in 115 countries. Revenues were approximately just a measly $1.5 billion annually. I mean, he ain't hurting. Just $1.5 billion? I mean, who even wants that? Annually. They give like, oh, well, I don't know. Annually. That's, like a, that's, like a, that's almost like a normal Powerball jackpot these days. But he's getting that every year, and that and he doesn't have to pay the seventy six percent tax. Yeah, I love that when it was like when somebody won it, and they were like, "Congratulations to the federal government for winning the seven hundred and fifty seven million dollar jackpot." You're right. <laughs> it is unbelievable how much you pay in taxes, man. Now, after that, they better ever come up, come to me with their hand out. Never, ever. Now, Barry did have a reputation, and depending on how you knew Barry is whether you liked him or not. To say his reputation was mixed was a understatement, and the National Post had actually called him a person with, quote, two legacies. Now, Barry and Honey were described by Toronto Mayor John Tory as, quote, good, kind people, and he was widely praised for his philanthropic giving. The couple would donate a record $50 million to the United Jewish Appeal and other Jewish charities, despite the fact that Barry 
was a self-proclaimed atheist. And they made well, it I'm be- just saying, if you're not giving away money, if you got that much money and you're not charitable, then fuck you. Well, I'm yeah. looking at you, Walton family. That's true. They don't give away. They, all of them. There's not a single Walton family member that gives any money to charity. Prove me wrong, people. Don't well, shop at Walmart. Sidebar, when I was a fledgling softball coach, I wrote a letter to Sam's Club to try and get some money donated so we could upgrade that cow pasture we played on. And they graciously gave me $75. I was like, yep, this will buy some Cokes for the year. Get me a big Gatorade cooler. (laughs) But anyway, now they made a big deal out of Barry donating all this money to the Jewish cause because he was an atheist. And it's not really that big a deal. His wife was first-generation removed Holocaust survivor. I think she was actually born in a liberated Holocaust camp. So, Damn. Yeah. I mean, it's not – I don't know. It, it, they just made a huge deal out of it. And I'm like, dude, he loves his wife. Let him give what he wants to. But anyway, now on the other hand, Morton Shulman, a physician and former member of the Ontario Parliament – who later in his life would fight Barry over drug developments, called him, quote, the only person I have ever met with that had no redeeming features whatsoever, end quote. A Bloomberg writer stated that some rival generic drug company executives used, quote, unprintable language to describe Barry Sherman. University of Ottawa law professor Amir Atan described Sherman as a, quote, deplorable human being in reference to his business practices, claiming that he gouged Canadians with high drug prices. Quote, Canadians pay more for generic drugs than almost every other country. He sought to manipulate our system and enrich himself and impoverish Canadian patients who use his drugs, end quote. Uh, The law professor would go on to accuse Barry of crossing ethical lines concerning the intellectual property rights to, quote, fight as many as 100 battles at a time in court to challenge drug patents and make way for Apotex generic prescriptions, end quote, with little end benefit to the consumers, according to Amir Atan. By contrast, Barry saw Apotex as a force for good, saying, if we were thieves... We would be Robin Hoods, end quote. Now, as told in Jeffrey Robinson's 2001 book, Prescription Games, Money, Ego, and Power Inside the Pharmaceutical Industry, Barry himself acknowledged the long-running conflict between Apotex and the major pharmaceutical companies over drug patents, saying, quote, The branded drug companies hate us. They have private investigators on us all the time. The thought once came to my mind. Why didn't they just hire someone to knock me off? End quote. Now, private investigators working for the German company Bayer AG, one of the world's largest drug companies, reportedly considered planting illegal drugs in Barry's car during an operation to lure Apotex employees into informing on whether the company was knowingly infringing on Bayer's patents. Now, Barry was not shy of suing for anything and everything. 
Apotex was one of the few Canadian companies that would respond to adverse regulatory decisions by suing the government themselves. By 2017, the company had filed an estimated 1,200 cases against the government in federal court. A spokesman for Health Canada named as a defendant in dozens of Apotex suits claimed and complained that the company's litigiousness had cost Canadian taxpayers millions of dollars in legal fees. Quote, it was intimidating to come back from lunch and find an urgent memo on your desk saying you've got to get over to federal court because Sherman was at it again, recalled Michelle Briel Edwards, former Health Canada head of drug regulations. He's at it again. You got to go to federal court. Yeah. (laughs) Again? (laughs) He sued the federal government 1,200 times. 1,200 times. Yeah. She would go on to say, he quickly demonstrated that, in fact, you can bully the government and you can intimidate the government, end quote. Now, one of Apotex's lawsuits over the company's application to make a generic version of the antidepressant trazodone took 30 years. Hey, I take that. <laughs> 30 years it was in federal courts. And they... Sheesh. Ultimately, the Federal Court of Appeal would rule that the government had mishandled the evidence, and it was kicked out after 30 years. Barry himself once told employees that Apotex was primary, primarily a legal company that sold medication on the side. Quote, he was a billionaire <laughs> driven to litigation less by money than something more primal, a sense of righteousness, certitude that propelled him to prevail at any cost, end quote. Now, competitors and regulators were not the only targets of Apotex litigation in the 1990s following an extension of patents that made generic drugs less profit profitable to produce the company began exploring making branded drugs of its own one of them was deferoprone a potential treatment for the blood disorder thalassemia or thalassemia I don't even fucking have a whatever come on bro it's a blood disorder Anyway, <laughs> trials were overseen by the University of Toronto hematologist Dr. Dr. Nancy Oliveri at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. By 1998, Oliveri had serious concerns as to whether the drug was effective or even safe and broke a confidentiality agreement with Apotex to publish her findings. Is that seriously the name of the place? Yeah. The Hospital for Sick Children? Yep. That's the name of it? Yep. Come on, Canada. Get more creative. I don't know. I don't know. Well, at least you know where to take them. Well, that's well, true. A sick kid. Have you tried the, the hospital, hospital for, for sick, sick children? children? Yeah. I'm thinking <laughs> you might want to go over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Apotex would respond by attempting to damage Oliveri's reputation and filing a lawsuit. The University of Toronto took the company's side rather than risk the loss of a $20 million donation for a planned research center and removed Oliveri from her position as head of research program on hemoglobin disorders. Eventually she would regain her position after years of her own litigation. The incident helped inspire John Le Carre's novel, The Constant Gardener. In 2011, Barry's cousins from his uncle, 
the old orphans that when mom and pop passed away would sue him alleging that he never paid them royalties and equity in Apotex, contending that he had used the proceeds from the 1972 sale of their father's Empire Labs to purchase Apotex in 1973. The cousins were seeking a 20% interest combined in Apotex or damages of $1 billion. Barry responded by withdrawing millions of dollars in financial assistance to his cousins that he had continuously gave them. They contended that Barry, quote, had offered the financial assistance in the first place in order to make the cousins dependent on him and to keep them from learning about their rights to the business, end quote. This is an allegation that Barry vehemently denied. And in September 2017, an Ontario, Ontario Superior Court justice ruled against the cousins, saying that the case was, quote, wishful thinking and beyond fanciful, end quote. At the time of the judgment, a lawyer for the cousins said they would appeal, though that never happened. So, again, going to Barry's reputation, in 1996, him and Honey completed a North York home following five years of construction. The Shermans were so dissatisfied with the work done on it, and in particular, they claimed that the garage, a structure with a tennis court on top and a basement lap pool and hot tub, was faulty. Barry called it a, quote, disaster. He and his wife filed 12 separate suits against all of the contractors, ultimately recovering almost the entire $2.3 million that they paid to have the house built for. I mean, the man's not afraid to sue the shit out of anybody. Clearly not. 1,200 times. And you just must have liked he must have liked the free food at court or something. Maybe they had a good salad bar. He, had, he liked that courtroom coffee you can chew on. Yeah. Now, a partial draft of his unpublished memoir called Legacy of Thoughts was submitted as part of Barry's motion for summary judgment in the lawsuit brought up by his cousins. He described the manuscript as his observations on philosophy, Canadian politics, and the pharmaceutical in- industry. Sherman did not believe in God, free will, altruism, or morality. Quote, I find no inconsistency in holding intellectually that life has no meaning while at the same time being highly motivated to survive and to achieve, end quote. Barry was targeted by the Canadian wing of the Jewish Defense League, a group on the FBI's terrorist watch list, and had been sued by Israel's largest generic drug maker, Teva Pharmaceutical Industries. So... We got a man that's suing the federal government over 1,200 times just because he doesn't like the regulations that they are throwing out there. He also sues the people, all of the contractors that built his 2.3 or $2.9 million home and recovers almost all of that money. I would say you just don't cross the man. Or you better have, Somebody your, did. Yeah, or you better have your eyes dotted and your T's crossed. And speaking to what Coach just said, on Friday, December the 15th, 2017, emergency services were called to 50 Old Colony Road. Upon arrival, medical personnel find two deceased victims. Authorities would deem the death suspicious 
and police would not identify the bodies or exactly where the bodies were found inside the home. Police would also not comment on whether there was any trauma to the bodies. Detective Brandon Pierce told the press that the, quote, deaths are suspicious but are not yet being treated as homicides, end quote. Pierce would go on to state that the police were still trying to determine if there was foul play involved. Authorities would also state that they would know more tomorrow after the postmortem examinations were completed. Now, a person close to the case would state that the bodies were found by a, quote, non-family member and that they were not looking for a suspect due to there not being any sign of forced entry. The following day, Apotex would release a statement saying that their founder, Barry Sherman, and his wife, Honey, were found deceased at their home the previous day. The Toronto Sun would release an article on December 16, 2017, titled Murder-Suicide Suspected in the Deaths of Toronto Billionaire and Wife. It states, Barry Sherman, a billionaire businessman and philanthropist, was found dead alongside his wife, Honey, in their Toronto mansion Friday morning. Police sources told The Sun, officially, Toronto police aren't commenting on the tragedy other than to call the deaths one of Canada's one of Canada's richest couples suspicious. However, sources say police were working Friday night on the theory of the demise of the billionaire Apotex founder and his wife, which has stunned the city and those who knew them, may have been a murder-suicide. Sources close to the case believe Honey may have been killed in a secondary location in the $6.9 million Old Colony Road home and then moved to the location where she was later found with her deceased husband. Quote, forensics need to be done in postmortems on the bodies, but at this stage it appears that no forced entry and no evidence of anybody else in the house, a police source would say. Emergency responders found the pair hanging from a railing that surrounded the lap pool inside the house. Inspector Brian Bott, who heads up the homicide unit, would not confirm or comment on the details of the case, but he did tell the Toronto Sun, quote, at this time, we are not searching for any suspects, end quote. Bott said homicide detectives will conduct a full investigation and all avenues will be explored. That said, police did not immediately find a suicide note in a search for, of the massive house which will include reviewing of the home's video surveillance system, which had just began. If autopsies and forensics change the scenario, scenario, a source close to the case said that senior homicide officials will update the public. So we have Canada's, one of Canada's, if not Canada's, richest man and his wife found dead hanging from the railing of their indoor lap pool in a $6.9 million home. The security system that was referred to in that article was managed by ADT, and it is unclear if the security cameras or the security system was even operational at the time of the deaths. Now, there were cameras that were positioned both inside and outside the home, but again, no one knows if they were turned on or not. Barry was infamously known for not activating the system. What is known is there was a camera in the pool area where the Sherman's bodies were found. They stated, I saw a documentary about this whole situation here, and they interviewed some of the Sherman's friends, and they said that for 
them to be as wealthy as they were, they didn't have like a private security detail at their house. They didn't have a gate. You just could pull up, ring the doorbell, and a billionaire might answer the door. Now, Barry and Honey's children immediately released a statement stating, quote, our parents shared an enthusiasm for life and a commitment to their family and their community, totally inconsistent with the rumors regrettably circulated in the media as to the circumstances surrounding their deaths. We, the family, are shocked and think it's irresponsible that police sources have reportedly advised the media of a theory which neither the family nor their friends or colleagues believe to be true. We urge the Toronto Police Service to conduct a thorough, intensive, objective criminal investigation and urge the media to refrain from further reporting as to the causes of these tragic deaths until the investigation is complete, end quote. Well, I mean, upon inspection, it does look like sort of a murder-suicide. I mean, if you go, Bunny had a bruise on her face, meaning she was hit in some kind of way. So it led them to think, you know, that Barry had done it, hanged her, and then hanged himself. True, they shouldn't have reported it until more information was available. But what are you going to report? It's the it's the richest couple in Canada. Well, in the way you're going to, it, it is a sensational story. Yes, you're going to re, you're going to report it. The way it was portrayed in the articles that I read is basically they were photographed all the time, like their comings and goings, especially Honey's, because she was so philanthropic with their money. She was always doing something. She was breaking ground on a news community center or something for a ch- this charity. She was serving on the board of this charity. She, you know, she was a good hearted lady. And so they were kind of like very well known. And so once it starts leaking that they were found dead, like you said, they've got to say something, but as you will soon realize the Toronto police department didn't handle this one too well, which is not, I mean, which is not the first time we've encountered something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In the course of our podcast, when we're talking about police investigations, it is heavily favored in the NAR side. Yeah. <laughs> but every time we've seen good police work, we've pointed it out now. Don't get us wrong. That's right. We will commend a good police work and we will shit on the bad ones. So, <laughs> what we do know about the discovery of the bodies is that the Sherman's cleaning lady arrives at the home on 50 Old Colony Road at 8.30 a.m. on Friday, December 15, 2017. She notices the morning paper is still outside the door, which she finds odd, but she unlocks the door and goes to disable the alarm, but notices that it had not been set. Again, peculiar, but not out of the ordinary. She begins cleaning the house first, heading upstairs to the upper level. Now, to say that this house is massive is an understatement. Both the upper floor and the main floor combined have an estimated square footage of just over 3,600. Like, that's almost three of my house. Yeah. And that's just the two, the top floor and the main floor. That's not even considering the basement. You also have on the upper and main floors... All of this square footage, but it's broken up into multiple rooms that the cleaning lady is attending to. Both the upper floor, I'm sorry, around the time um, 
that the cleaning lady starts her cleaning upstairs. The Sherman's gardener shows up to water the plants that Barry and Honey have inside their home. And everybody made a big deal. Well, they've got a gardener coming in December. Well, from the pictures that you can see of this house, they had massive plants everywhere. And so once a week, yes, their gardener would show up and make sure to water and fertilize and trim and whatever they needed to do to all of the houseplants in this massive home. Now, next, the real estate agent that worked for the Shermans arrives to show the home to some potential buyers. The home is listed for just $6.9 million, and another real estate agent arrives with a wealthy couple who are interesting are interested. Just yeah, six point nine million. Just, just yeah, it's just just a little pocket chain. That's just more than I'll ever make in my entire lifetime of working. But you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, the numbers in this story boggle my mind. I mean, there we'll get to it. And I, you think six point nine is going to be something? You just hold on there, bub. Oh. So another real estate agent arrives with a wealthy couple, and this couple is interested in purchasing the Sherman home. Now, the two potential buyers and the two real estate agents begin touring the home first upstairs, and then they proceed down to the main floor, and ultimately they head downstairs to the basement where the underground pool is at. Once on the lower floor, the real estate agent opens the door to the hallway leading to the pool and looks down, and she sees a pair of driving gloves and the home inspection report she had asked Barry for. She picks up the gloves in the report and leads the other agent and the two clients down the hallway to the swimming pool room door. As she enters the pool room, she notices that the overhead lights are not on, but the lights in the pool are, which gives it an eerie blue glow. As she is reaching to turn on the overhead lights, she glances to the far end of the pool and notices Barry and Honey sitting in an odd position. At first, she thinks, quote, are they doing some sort of yoga, end quote, but quickly, yeah. Yeah, that's, it's, I'm sorry to laugh at that, but yeah, that's kind of, they're in their 70s. Yeah, they're not down there, they're not down there doing yoga next to the pool. Now, they did have a personal trainer that would show up and help them exercise, but that is not today. As she quickly realizes that that is not what's going on, she dawns on her that something's not right, and she immediately turns around and hurries the other agent and the two clients out of the pool room, and upon closing the door behind her, says, we will be in touch, and basically just bull rushes their ass off the property. After this hurried exit, the realtor calls the gardener and the cleaning lady explaining that there is some something seriously wrong with Barry and Honey. So the gardener goes into the swimming pool room to check on Barry and Honey, and as she approaches, she notices that they're dead. And the gardener comes out, tells the realtor to call emergency services, and so the bodies were initially discovered at 11 a.m., and the call to emergency services didn't occur until 11.43 a.m. 
Now, there are a couple of articles out there that state that the real estate agent called someone before she called 911 to seek advice on what she should do. I don't know. No one knows who she called. No one knows what kind of advice she was seeking. But if you find two dead people in a house you're showing, I'm pretty sure even if they are pretty famous and wealthy, you call emergency services. But that's just me. So the Sherman's family gather at the oldest daughter's house, Alexandra's, on the evening of December 15th, 2017, trying to make sense of the news that the police are treating the case as a murder-suicide. The other daughter, Lauren, was currently in Mexico and is trying to catch a direct flight back to Toronto. And Honey's sister, Mary, was in Florida when she received the news and immediately charters a private plane and arrives at Alexandra's home. Barry's second-in-command at Apotex, Jack Kay, is present, and eventually everyone begins trying to think of the last time they spoke to either Barry or Honey. Now, Jack says that he had exchanged emails with Barry on Wednesday, December 13th, around 8.23 p.m. The rest of the family realizes that Honey was supposed to be at a board meeting for one of the charities that she served on the morning of the of Thursday, December 14th, but she did not show up for the meeting. And then Jack caught, makes some phone calls and realizes that Barry never came into work on Thursday, December the 14th. All of the children began looking at their phones and realized that there had been no texts or emails from Barry or Honey, and it is at this point no one can remember speaking to them on Thursday, December the 14th. What is quickly realized is that Honey and Barry were both last seen at the Apotex offices on Wednesday evening where they met with architects who were designing their new home. Honey would leave that meeting around 5 p.m. And at the time, it was theorized that she was heading straight home without making any stops. Now, Barry's departure time was a little more hazy. Some would state that he could have left as early as 6.30 p.m. or as late as 8.45 p.m. The latter time seems more consistent because, remember, Jack said that he received an email reply at 8.23 p.m. Approximately eight hours after the discovery of Barry and Honey's body, or bodies, a detective from the Homicide Squad of the Toronto Police arrives at Alexandra's home, basically walks in and says they have no information, and as soon as they do, they'll be in touch, and turns around. Well, you don't do that to one of Toronto's richest families. No. And that goes over like a turd in a punch bowl. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Soon after the detective leaves, however, Alexandra receives a phone call from a family member of a couple that knew Barry and Honey. They were mysteriously murdered in Hallandale Beach, Florida in 2013. They are Rochelle Wise and Donnie Pekoski. Their case is still unsolved. Now, this family member explains that the Sherman family cannot trust the police to do everything correctly, which combine that with the cold approach that they just encountered from the detective you got the beginnings of them wanting to start their own investigation. And they do. 
On Sunday, December 17th, police come out with a one-line statement after the conclusion of the autopsies on the Shermans. Quote, autopsy results revealed the cause of death for both Honey and Barry are ligature neck compression, end quote. Again, the the family's not taking this lightly, and through an attorney, a second autopsy is conducted on Sunday, December the 20th, 2017, just one day before the funeral of Barry and Honey. The working theory at the time from authorities is that Barry hung Honey with a leather belt and then did the same thing to himself. The problem... It's just not, just not true, man. No. Don't believe it. Ooh, the problem is how the bodies are discovered where the Shermans are in a sitting position with the belts on the handrail of the pool. Both had winter coats on that were pulled down behind their backs and rolled down over their arms. The way that it was described is think of having a winter coat on and then someone taking your coat off, rolling it down as they're taking it off and then stops right below the elbows where it's kind of binding you or keeping your hands in that position. Now there's no way from the little height from the top of the railing to the area around the pool that you could hang yourself in that, I guess commit suicide in that position. What is also discovered in the family's autopsy is that there are bruises around both Honey and Barry's wrist. Now, this is consistent with both being bound in some fashion before their hearts stopped beating. But there were no bindings located at the crime scene. Theories have said that they could have been flex cuffs, zip ties, or anything that was easily taken with the murderer or murderers. Now, toxicology reports on both Honey and Barry state that there were no drugs found in their system that would have contributed to their deaths. At the conclusion of the second autopsies by the family, the pathologist concludes that both Barry and Honey were murdered. Not only were they murdered, but their bodies had been posed to make a statement. Both Barry and Honey were in a seated position with their backs to the pool, with men's belts around their necks, with the end of the belt through the buckle and pulled tight. The free end of each belt was then looped or tied to the low railing around the pool, thus suspending their bodies off the floor so that it would appear as if they were in a reclined sitting position. Now, it takes authorities over a week from when the family released to the press that the Shermans were murdered for the police to hold a press conference confirming the same thing. Six weeks after the bodies are found is when authorities begin the process of treating the case as a double homicide. So Keystone Cops is being nice in this situation. I'm sorry, it was not six weeks. It was six days. Uh, Police would state that they had a list of people who had access to the Sherman home as well as a list of people who had toured the home with real estate agents. Now, there was a big deal in the papers and some of the videos I watched about who had access to the Dropbox for the real estate agent, um, you know, the agencies to come in and show the house. But according to authorities, they had checked all of those people out and cleared all of them. 
Well, maybe they missed something. Maybe, maybe it was them. Maybe it was the Keystone Cops themselves. I'm just saying, I mean, isn't that when you're about to sell a $6.7 million house, doesn't it make sense just to murder the people? Yeah, yeah. Doesn't that happen all the time? Yeah. I mean, that's a good way to get your commission. Exactly. I mean, you're 30%. I mean, that's just chump change on that kind of house. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is going to conclude part one. Yes, those are the words that Coach hates to hear, but we are busting this bad boy up into two parts because by the time I finished reading my notes and us discussing the case, going through the theories and the list of suspects, you would have to pull the... You uh, know I dislike two-parters, but I also dislike three-and-a-half-hour podcasts. That's right. <laughs> so with that, we are going to come back next week with all of the juicy bits on the couple of working theories out there. Um, also, some suspects that have been named, along with a wonderful recommendation that I will make next week. And since I'm doing a recommendation next week, coach does not have to do his recommendation. So mark this down. This may be the first time we do not recommend shit. So we've got, um, part well, two, you know, the only, thing, the only thing I really had time for my girlfriend got me watching Dexter and I just don't know if it's worth recommending. So I'm going to save it till next week. The first season I thought was good. The second and third season are really good. Now, the season with John Lithgow is amazing. He is an evil. See, that's the thing. That's what I heard is like the first three seasons are really good, and the fourth season's amazing, but then it falls apart after that. I am almost done with the third season, and I'm like, when's this going to get good? <laughs> but I'm I'm holding out for the fourth season because I know John Lithgow did a great job. He did. It He's an Man. evil son of a bitch in that one. Yeah, that's what I'm saying because I want to see that. So I'm I'm gonna finish third season, watch the fourth, and then I'll make a decision. Well, we just lied. Hell, we're I'll go ahead and give you one too. Uh, Righteous Gemstones, <laughs> Righteous Gemstones on Max or HBO or whatever the fuck they're calling themselves these days. You just now seeing that? No, no, no. I, what I'm trying to say is the reason I'm recommending it is if you are a Justified fan and you are going through Boyd Crowder withdrawals. Yeah, Uncle that, Baby Billy. Uncle Baby Billy. That he they're totally two different characters, but dude, he What season are you on? I've only I'm only halfway through the first season. Oh, he gets better and better. I know. That's He's definitely He I see, definitely pulls that show. I see all the TikTok videos, so there you go. I will yeah. say this and I've recommended them I before. Love, I love Danny McBride, but Walton Goggins makes that, I love show. that show. Yeah. Uncle Baby Billy. Uncle Baby Billy. Well, damn, boy, I didn't know you was going to hit that hard. Um, <laughs> Five Wits Brewing in Chattanooga, if you ever get a chance to go up there, people, I got a chance to talk to one of the assistant brewers this weekend because, yes, I went back up there for the third straight weekend. And um, they are phenomenal. Phenomenal, man. It's It's a great experience. They're great people down to earth. So if you get a chance, visit them at the old Community Pie in Chattanooga, right there at Hamilton Place. They are in the old, old Chicago pizza building, right next to the movie theater. Well, Coach him. you got anything else? Uh, you know I don't. Uh, deuces.